Well, welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, our podcast series. It's brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is Railway Age Editor-in-Chief William C. Vantuono. My special guests for this podcast are the President and Chief Executive Officer of Amtrak, Bill Flynn, and the Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Operating and Commercial Officer, Stephen Gardner. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we are very pleased that, uh, that you can join us. There are a lot of questions uh, surrounding Amtrak and, and its future. Uh, a lot of controversy, as, as, you, as you can imagine, uh, and as you approach your 50th anniversary next year. I'd like to start with a general question. What is your long-term vision for Amtrak? So uh, put it in another way, what role do you see intercity passenger rail playing in the national transportation network? Bill, good to be with you. This is Bill Flynn from Amtrak. I think Amtrak today and going forward in the future has an essential role to play in inner city passenger rail traffic. Um, if you think about our recent several years, uh, the company has built a very strong foundation. I think we've demonstrated over the past several years uh, the demand that exists for our services, and that demand exists across the three elements of our, of our current network, um, the Northeast Corridor, our state-supported network, and our long-distance uh, rail services as well. The company's made substantial investments so far uh, in that future, the Acela 21, which will be delivering soon, the um, diesel locomotives, as well as the rail cars that we've acquired for um, uh, services across all segments, And uh, as, as you know. Uh, the investments that we're making in our, our train stations uh, across our network uh, and um, anticipated order of new inner city uh, train sets to be used across uh, across the network. Um, I think where we ended up at the end of 2019, uh, great growth handling over 33 million passengers, providing a very high level of on-time performance, shows what the demand for those services could be. I think long-term, our, our long-term goal remains the same. Over the next 20 years, uh, we really should, we are focused on doubling the size of the customer base that we serve. We believe the customers are there. Uh, we believe that the quality of the service that we offer and, and will offer, the lower environmental impact, and those types of considerations that uh, rail traffic provides. And um, the, the, the group of customers and potential customers that are called millennials, I, I believe, are looking for uh, transportation and mobility, mobility alternatives. Um, now and in the future, and I think Amtrak is exceptionally well positioned to do that. And so, as we're where we are now, we're thinking, of course, about the crisis. We have to manage through that and make the right decisions in the near term, but never losing sight of of beyond recovery into the medium and longer term, a role that our company uh, should be playing um, in the country. Now you you mentioned uh, the millennials and uh, and Stephen Gardner. This is uh, something that you've discussed with our Capitol Hill contributing editor Frank Wilner uh, a couple of times. Uh, uh, the uh, millennials tend to be more concerned about about the environment and quality of life. They may prefer uh, high quality rail service, high frequency uh, to flying or driving. Uh, I'll give you an example from my own family. 
now my my niece and her husband now they're not millennials but they're they're in their mid 20s and they went to visit his relatives in Minneapolis they took the capital limited overnight they wanted to take an overnight train my sister tells me that they loved the trip they enjoyed it so i think it might be a misconception that uh, uh that young people don't enjoy uh taking long distance trains what 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 do you think about that so a couple of things. First, uh, I mean, I completely concur that uh, the generations that you know have been both millennials and and the generation thereafter uh, have come about in a time when um, convenience, connectivity, um, flexibility are kind of the key attributes of of you know, a high quality experience. And so um, we think rail fits really well with that, with those traits. And also, you know, very high percentage of those generations are in our major metropolitan areas where congestion uh, is an issue. And uh, people are looking for also sort of experience oriented travel where um, they're you know, not just taking trips to visit family and friends, but also to get out and explore and see new, new places, have new experiences. And um, rail, I think, really served that market uh, potentially really well. I, I, our big issue is that many of those markets in the United States, particularly the fastest growing markets, have very little passenger rail service. When we look at the entire Southeast, I mean, our fastest growing states, Florida, Texas, uh, some of the Mountain West states, Southeast states have, have very little in the way of intercity passenger service. So it's not that, that those uh, individuals aren't also interested in long distance trips. I mean, I think that's a part of our market, but it's, it's a tiny overall portion of our, uh, of our service. As you know, most of our trips on long distance are not end-to-end overnight trips. They're shorter distance segments uh, using essentially long distance trains as corridor for corridor travel, and the vast majority of our trips corporately are through our state-supported services and on the Northeast Corridor. So I think the focus here is not um, to say that, you know, we, we aren't interested in, for a new generation, showing the value of rail across all our service lines. We absolutely are, but the big opportunity is to, to provide more service where these generations are living and working today and serving their primary travel needs where, where rail offers an obvious advantage. And that's in these shorter distance corridors where we can be trip time competitive and get people from city center to city center. Uh, and that's what, what folks tell us when we ask them uh, as well, when we do our market research, that's kind of the obvious place. And, and, you know, you, you, you and, uh, certainly know the corridors and the strengths of those corridors and, and, the ability for us to attract a wide range of, uh, of folks to our services there. So we hope that we can modernize the long distance service. We're working hard to do that, to appeal to a new generation, to create an experience which they find um, interesting. And, and look, I think long distance gives an incredible view into America and, and, a, and a wonderful opportunity for people to engage in our country and to travel in a convenient and a comfortable way, um, but we do need to continue to modernize that product. And fundamentally, we want to put more trains in the kind of markets where 
um, the new travelers uh, are going to be. Yeah. So if I could just add uh, just one particular. So I'm glad it was your was it your niece and and uh, and her and, husband and nephew. Yeah, your niece and her husband. Well, first of all, uh, I'm glad they took Amtrak and thanked them for for being our customers. But um, the, the point I, re- I wanted to make is, um, you know, they mentioned you that had a good experience, and that's and and, and we really need to recognize uh, all of our people who are out there, you know, delivering the service and 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 serving our customers all the time. But but certainly during this uh, during this COVID pandemic, so. Everyone in the stations, um, the engineers, the conductors, the onboard service uh, uh, staff, the people who clean the cars and maintain them. Um, our, 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 we've, we've been, uh, we have a, just a great group of people, uh, employees here at Amtrak that are showing up every day in the face of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, delivering uh, what, what we want to be a, a great experience uh, for all of our customers, uh, whatever route they may be on. So thanks for the feedback from them. So let, let's talk a little bit more about the, the, the long distance service. And, you know, there, there are uh, some, there are two schools of thought among uh, observers or advocates, and, and they each tends to take an extreme position. Uh, there are some advocates, uh, some critics say that uh, the long-term objective is to discontinue uh, all long-distance trains uh, and, and instituting three-day-a-week service uh, starting in October is, is part of that. Uh, they say this is a mistake because uh, an important ridership demographic will lose service. On the other extreme, uh, there are people that say the long-distance trains are outdated and nostalgic relic of the past. Uh, stopping a train three times in the middle of the, uh, middle of the night serves little purpose. Um, and that, as you've said, that uh, Amtrak uh, needs to move on and develop short to medium distance corridor services with more uh, local regional input, more frequency. Well, I, you know, I'd like to give you a chance to set the record straight. Yeah, well, thanks for that question, Bill. So, so I want to just be unambiguously clear. We are committed to the future of the long distance network. We know it's important to many people, and it serves a valued role in the communities across the nation. And that's clear. Uh, uh, Congress is clear on that. Um, our riders are clear on that. And so we're committed to, to operate our long-distance service. And as ridership returns, we intend to restore service across the net, our company, but we intend to restore service uh, specifically in the long-distance trains, as, as, you, as you asked. The ridership is just so low that it's, it does not make sense at this point to operate seven-day services across the country. The numbers are, are, are exceedingly small. And as we come into uh, November, December, and then January, February, we're at our, actually our lowest ridership um, through, throughout the year. The point that Stephen was making is while we'll continue to operate that long distance serv- those long-distance services, there are many origin destination pairs on segments of the, those long distance lines where in addition to the once a day service, we could operate many more frequencies a between shorter stage length segments and provide the frequency and the trip time competitiveness and, and really generate, um, I believe, an important a- avenue of growth 
uh, for Amtrak in those in those uh, origin destination pairs um, that don't get more than the once a day service, perhaps a thrice a week um, service, and yet that's where people are, and 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 that's where the migration has been over the last thirty years of our country. We've advocated on that uh, specifically with Congress and have several ideas that we've promoted uh, uh, working with the states able to develop those services. So a large factor of increasing frequency and developing um, additional corridors, shorter to medium distance corridors, would involve working with your class one partners, your, your class one freight railroad uh, hosts. Yes. Do you think they would be receptive to that and under what conditions? I know that's, that's a tough question. Oh, it's, it's a very important uh, question. I think it gets really at the core of what the growth opportunities for uh, Amtrak are and at the core of the contribution we, we, we can make you know, to our society and, and, and to the mobility strategy of the U.S. So we absolutely have to be able to work with the freight railroads we have to resolve the issues, the long-standing historical issues that exist. Um, we're in the process now with the S STB, with the uh, rulemaking, uh, hopefully soon to be issued on metrics and, and, and standards. Um, hopefully that clarifies a foundational discussion for us with the class one railroads. We will continue to, to, to um, urge Congress to uh, pass and create uh, through legislation private right of action for Amtrak should we have to ultimately resort to to that or to enforce the uh, statutory rights that we have but you're right um, we have to work with the class one railroads to be able to build these frequencies and provide services across the country uh, outside of our corridors uh, Stephen you have a an extensive Capitol Hill background uh, and and one of the things that has uh, has been said about uh, Amtrak, uh, rightfully so, I think, is that it's, uh, in a way, it's politically captive and, and, and uh, it, Congress can be downright, they can be supportive or, or there can be meddling. Uh, from from your, your experience, uh, is there any way uh, to maybe not free uh, Amtrak from being "Quote unquote politically captive, but at least maybe loosen some some of the some of the captivity there. Maybe uh, uh, I, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but maybe uh, open the door, loosen the loosen the cage, or loosen the strings a little bit. How do you do that? First off, actually, you introduced uh, in your introduction, you had sort of talked about us coming up on our fifty years, and and I have to say, in the last my experience, which has you know been very involved with. Amtrak and rail issues over the last 20, um, we were actually at the really the height of consensus and I'd say the, the least amount of controversy we've ever had about Amtrak and passenger rail as a mode. I mean, the, in my early part of my career, the question was, do we need inner city passenger rail? And over the course of this uh, new century, that question has been, I think, obviated. It, it, it's become kind of political consensus that passenger rail is important and it's going to serve and needs to serve a, a, a critical role in our mobility strategy. And, and the question has instead turned to, uh, I'll say, kind of the, you know, what, where, and how questions, uh, not the why anymore. And that represents really a change over our 50-year history. 
that there is such strong consensus. So you, you, you've seen record levels of congressional funding, record levels of bipartisan support, and very little controversy. Of course, as you said, there, there are elements as we change the network uh, and change our service that you know sparks some, some controversy, but in general, there's strong support. And I think that reflects um, fundamentally Americans' views, which is that you know when we talk to Americans and we talk about the opportunity for more passenger rail service, there's strong support. You're right that uh, it's not easy having a diverse owner, right? We're owned by the federal government, and there's a lot of different views, both in, in, in the House and Senate and in the administration. Uh, on the other hand, um, there's strong support. And, and the company, uh, in its design, is through our board of directors, which is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, and through the legislative process and appropriations process, needs to be responsive to um, to the federal government. And uh, and so I think the, the balance is to carry out the mission in the statute, which is the sort of instructions Congress gives us, um, at the same time recognizing that, you know, year to year, uh, uh, the needs of the federal government can change. And we see that through appropriations levels and, and different requirements. Um, I, I would say that I don't envision um, the situation changing dramatically in terms of the basic structure. I think Congress is fairly happy with the way that overall structure works. And there's always some push and pull between the different um, tensions in our, in our mandate, which is to provide service on a nationwide basis, but to do so efficiently with um, respect for the taxpayer's investment and um, to focus on producing a high quality service and a high quality service by by our measure and, and by by the statutes measure is you know one that's on time that's trip time competitive uh, one that serves um, the major population center in the United States and uh, so we, we try and follow as close as we can to that set of instructions um, and work with our colleagues in the administration and in Congress to do so. Um, and, and I'll say uh, all my history, we're at a time of kind of tremendous consensus that passenger rail is important. And you see that in the house just passed an authorization bill recommending $60 billion for passenger rail development. That's an unheard of, uh, uh, kind of level of investment and did so with really no controversy. Um, so, we're, um, uh, we're feeling good about the situation that exists. Obviously, the pandemic presents a whole new set of challenges we'll work through, but the long-term trends here are for support for this network, and our goal is to grow it. We think rail has so much more to do for the nation, and that's what we're really focused on. That's so, right. so would you say that the uh, the support or the consensus is actually stronger than most people realize, and that uh, the 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 critics uh, or the 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 for the legislators, politicians who who are the first to complain are the ones who who get the headlines, but everybody else doesn't get the headlines. But so so that it's kind of painting a false picture of how things really yeah. are. I think that's right. Or look, I think there are some very narrow interests, right? There are some very narrow interests who get a lot of attention. Um, and, 
you know, we have folks who raise uh, questions or concerns, but they're raising questions and concerns not about whether Amtrak should exist or whether passenger rail should continue, but they they raise concerns about, you know, whether we've changed our staffing levels at our stations or whether we've you know, changed the dining. I mean, if, if we're arguing about what kind of food the train is serving as opposed to whether or not there is a train, we have come leaps and bounds from the arguments of the 70s, 80s, 90s, right? Um, so, uh, you know, we, we appreciate that that people, you know, elected officials care about the details. We care about the details, and it's great that we have people who care about the details. Now, you know, obviously there's give and take there, and um, as a management team, our job is to try and deliver, a, a, you know, an executable, efficient, reliable service, uh, and you've got folks, advocates of various types who, you know, who, who, who may uh, find themselves at odds with some of the things we're trying to do for what we think is the good of the company and fulfilling our fiduciary duty. But um, in general, if, if we're fighting about, uh, you know, I mean, no one's really fighting here, but if the arguments are over kind of details of our service, as opposed to whether or not we have a network and whether the network is important, we've made big progress. Stephen really underscored it. I think, uh, I don't believe we're a captive. We are a government-owned corporation. Um, and um, and at just very high level, what Steve had said is we have strong bicameral and bipartisan support for Amtrak. And he's got the much longer perspective than I have in it. And I, I agree with him wholeheartedly. Okay, so one area that has been extremely difficult uh, for Amtrak uh, has been to establish a stable, reliable, annual source of funding, uh, whether that come from a, a penny on the motor fuels tax or a, or a title in a, a larger uh, transportation bill. Do you think that's possible to, to someday get get there? It's been, it's been attempted, but so far hasn't, uh, we haven't seen much uh, success with that. It's very difficult depending on annual appropriations. Um, when you're in a asset-based infrastructure industry and you have to plan for long-term investments and the funding for those investments and absent the certainty beyond one year of your of the ability to continue those investments um, is challenging. Uh, fortunately, we've had a good stream of investments or funding over the last several years. So yes, an inner city rail passenger trust fund is something that's considered uh, uh, in current uh, legislation and uh, we would wholeheartedly um, urge Congress to to move forward and establish a funded trust fund uh, Amtrak. And we think there are just myriad benefits, near-term and long-term, ultimately doing so. Do you think that perhaps uh, we're at a, uh, as a society, uh, we're at a tipping point? <clears throat> there's, there's the virus, of course, which, uh, which has changed travel patterns. And it's uh, maybe driving more people to services like rail rather than, uh, uh, rather than air. And I know you, you, you have a rail as well as an airline background, Bill. We'll, we'll get to that in a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, there are concerns about the environment, especially among younger people. Uh, I think uh, there is a realization that, uh, that climate change uh, is, is real. Do you think that perhaps all these factors put together will drive a need to have a regular source of 
intercity rail funding. We already have that for tra- for rail transit. Uh, as high up as the commuter rail level, of course, Amtrak and commuter right. railroads, many corridors, they coexist. I think you're right. I think there's several key factors. Earlier, we talked about, about millennials. We talked about younger people who absolutely have to be your customers, are concerned about the environment and are concerned about uh, the lifestyle choices they make and how they can, in fact, contribute to minimizing the impact of their choices, uh, minimizing the impact on, on our environment. And, and certainly, um, inner-city rail passenger tra- traffic is the travel is the most efficient and has the least amount of impact on the environment from a, from a carbon perspective. And people do think about that and, and certainly consider that. Lifestyles are different, too. As you, as you talked about a moment ago, I uh, lived in New York City, and I have to tell you, I've, over the past several years, certainly before Amtrak, I was surprised at how many young people I knew who were in their mid-20s into early 30s who not only didn't have a car, a lot of them didn't even have a driver's license. And so I'm old enough to know 50 years ago when I turned 16, the first thing I did was go down to the DMV and get my license. It was a rite of passage back then, right? And I think we all did that, but, but that's, that's not necessarily the case today. Um, people do live in cities and urban areas more, and that's where, in spite of this pandemic, I will continue to attract people. And, um, and public transportation and is becoming more important. Uh, uh, yes. And I think maybe it's probably a way of uh, uh, positioning Amtrak to fit into that general network of public transportation services. Make it right. Very- and I think the other thing, and the other thing too, Bill, we're thinking about our communications and and how we uh, the narrative around our company. And what what it forced us to to think about that in the last several months is how do we communicate to our customers and potential travelers what's going on within Amtrak, within our stations and on our trains to create as safe an environment as possible for their travel and what can we do to prevent and or mitigate the risk of spreading or COVID while, while traveling with us. And of course, that's gonna start at the station. We're pushing it through our, 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 our customer facing apps through Amtrak app to, to, to become first of all, as touchless as possible We've got social distancing uh, in our stations, in our trains, right? At currently, it's, we're, we're not selling above 50% of the capacity of the trains. Masks are required. You could have a virtually or nearly touchless experience, no, no more paper tickets. You, everything can be done very easily on your phone. Uh, we have cleaning protocols and ongoing research um, about travel in a train car, travel in our train cars. And, and we've come to understand it's really airborne transmission more than anything else. And, 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 and we're communicating much more about just, well, what does air exchange look like in a rail car, in an Amtrak car? The fact that we're completely exchanging air within the car every four to five minutes with fresh air from the outside. That air circulates 40 to 50 times an hour within the train. That air circulation and even the direction of that air circulation can can further facilitate you know, the suppression of, of, of the virus. And we're, uh, we're working with a couple of academic institutions now uh, researching that and should have some findings that we could better communicate. So, so not only we're communicating about safety, but I think it encourages us to think how much more broadly can we communicate about the other attributes of the product 
that will uh, bring folks on board. One last thought. As we've seen the dramatic drop in travel overall, we know that business travel is down substantially. So um, our marketing group is doing substantial amount of research and virtual focus groups with our customers, gaining insight about the nature of their travel plans. And we've been targeting over the last months uh, a younger generation, a millennial generation, to, to first of all, I think, induce many of them to go take a trip. If they're going to take a trip, because we're not, you're not really inducing people to travel uh, today. It's not the environment. Um, but if you are going to take a trip, consider taking a trip on Amtrak. And so we're communicating. We're using different media to communicate to them. We've used pricing strategies on tickets on our, on our fares. And we're getting quite a bit of younger people on the trains, many of whom have never traveled before. And they're telling us that through our customer satisfaction uh, uh, measurements. Uh, and uh, they like it. It's a great way to travel. And um, I was on the train uh, up from up to New York the other day, and I chatted with uh, you know the conductors on board and and the folks in the in the cafe car. And without me asking, they're telling me how how many people they're starting to see on the train. And so our goal is get them on the train and then make a lifelong customer. And it's not only. Uh the uh, environmental aspect of it or the convenience, but it's also the, the convenience aspect. It's, uh, oh, yeah. and, and we've been saying this for years, you know, uh, in terms of, let's say, travel on the Northeast Corridor, uh, why go through the hassle? Uh, and I've been writing about this for almost 30 years. <laughs> why go through the hassle of uh, uh, that, that flying takes you and uh, when, when you could just go center city to center city? Uh, that's probably something that needs to be uh, re-emphasized, would you think? We, we continue to need to talk about that. And then when you get on board, our, a coach seat on an Amtrak regional train is, I would say, is a better, a better deal than, than a business class seat on domestic air travel. It's a bigger seat. You've got more legroom. You've got, you've got Wi-Fi all the way through the trip. Um, in this period of time, you're socially distant. You don't have anybody sitting next to you unless you're traveling, you know, uh, you know, with your family or something because you've elected to do that. It's just a great deal. And uh, you're right, city to city. It, it couldn't be easier. Um, I wanted to, uh, wanted to ask you, uh, you know, is it fair to characterize uh, Amtrak as, uh, as a monopoly, as, uh, as some critics have uh, uh, have said and and jumping off of that point uh, uh, How does Amtrak feel about competing for business with with independent operators? Yeah, well, maybe Steven's got the history on on this. I'll let him kind of comment, but I, I would say we're not a monopoly um, That is our that decision has already been made there are private operators in the country across the country in, in different markets uh, We're certainly prepared to compete and we do compete uh, in, in certain regions of the country today. Some of the state uh, services that we would provide or, the, or, or uh, for example. But I do think a national uh, railroad uh, does bring with it scale and scope advantages, substantial efficiencies, um, the ability to, you know, for example, we're, 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 we've just recently began taking deliveries of a new locomotive order. Uh, you had a picture of the new livery there in one of the 
the recent uh, publications, right? So we're able to bundle and, and, and make a substantial order to, of locomotive, get that efficiency in pricing, and serve a whole network. Uh, the same thing as we think about new inner city train sets, um, for example, and everything else. IT infrastructure, it's critical to, to running the railroad. So I think, and I think uh, in addition, many countries have realized that the most efficient and effective way to serve uh, rail passengers is through a, a national rail system. Stephen, you, you've got the history on this as well. For all the reasons Bill said, there's a lot of strength and value that comes from having a national railway operator. And that is, of course, the norm around the globe. Um, railways love scale, right? I mean, this is true. Bill, you're, you spend lots of time with our freight brethren. Uh, and, you know, you understand, I think, probably, uh, and you've had a front row seat to the consolidation uh, in that industry and, and the value that comes from uh, that kind of reduction in overhead and focus on serving the customer and deployment of assets. And that's no different in passenger rail. Uh, and in fact, in a way, even more the case because of the high facility costs and stations and all the other kind of assets that are in place here. Um, so there's a lot of value. And, and the nation created a passenger rail corporation um, primarily, mm -hmm. as you know, because of the failure of uh, the, the private sector model of uh, delivering the passenger service as an, as an integrated service with, with freight transportation. And, you know, I think our view um, is simply that in that deal, the federal government got very important rights when it created Amtrak. It relieved the post railroads now of their obligations and then the process got incremental access, got, um, you know, the right, the right to use all of the national railway system for passenger service and some expectations around you know, pricing and uh, commitment and ultimately preference, which came a little bit after founding, but was an important part of our kind of first decade. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the federal government can sort of get that deal again. That, that's where the situation, uh, you know, the, our origin story is really important here. Um, mm. But to the extent that there are other operators, I mean, first off, we encourage our, and, and are encouraged that others want to bring passenger rail to America, particularly kind of modern, high quality passenger service. And that's part of un, you know, our mission is to see the development of our mode. And so um, we, we don't see that as a sort of a threat in a way. We see it as, you know, people validating the concept that we have been trying to articulate for a long time, that passenger rail can do more and can provide important mobility options. Um, and, you know, so we, we wish those parties luck. And, uh, you know, and if there were more railway infrastructure owners who wanted to get into the passenger business, I think that that, that absolutely could be useful. Uh, but um, we shouldn't overlook the importance of scale an economy and a national integrated system it brings a lot of value and uh, we're here to try and deliver that value on behalf of the taxpayer and the federal government um, you know within our means because clearly um, I, you know there are a lot of folks who, who wonder why Amtrak doesn't just sort of unilaterally start service all over or doesn't unilaterally uh, create sort of a new fleet I mean those things are all obviously uh, contingent on an investment, and that's why we have to work very closely with our owner and our 
essentially our investor, the federal government, so that we have the resources to undertake those things. To the extent that there's a tension between the different parts of our network, it's because we have to always be mindful of the opportunity cost of if we invest in one part of our system, given that we're living with limited means, that means we don't have more dollars to invest in another part. So we're always trying to find that right balance of supporting our whole network. Um, but, but recognizing that you know, if we spend inefficiently in some part of our network, it's not without consequence. It means we have less dollars to invest in another part, uh, whether that's capital investment to replace our old fleet or you know, fix our ailing bridges and tunnels or um, starting new service and partnering with our states who are, you know, have been really the growth impetus for Amtrak is our partnership with our states for the sh short distance corridors. It's been a tremendous um, positive uh, development and a great partnership. Um, so we're always trying to find that optimal use of the limited dollars. And as the dollars grow, we can invest in more and invest more in our system. But we're trying to deliver the most value for all 320 million Americans that we can uh, with the limited funds we have. In terms of um, operating passenger rail service on a uh, national freight rail network. Uh, I've heard many times uh, from various uh, stakeholders that the freight railroads would rather deal with one entity that has experience operating passengers, intercity passenger trains, and that entity is Amtrak. Uh, mm -hmm. your, your thoughts on that? Well, I can't answer for the freight railroads, but, but we, we indeed do have long-standing working relationships with the freight railroads. We are operating a, a national, a nationwide long distance network with the freight railroads. And we're doing that, we're doing that uh, every day. Uh, there certainly are uh, issues and tensions that we wanna work to, to resolve, but, but, but we are operating those networks today. And I think, um, I, I think the point they're making there is it's, it's important for them to, to work with a, a counterparty, is Amtrak, that absolutely understands the rail business, that has a point of view in the services that we're trying to provide, that has a commitment to indeed service quality and to and and to you know continuing to become more efficient and more effective, uh, and drive high levels of customer service. Both of us want the same thing. Uh, well, there are a number of things that we, we want in common, but we certainly want on time uh, on time uh, trains. That's the point of you know. Precision yeah. scheduled railroading, that's the point of a service that if we're running on time, it's a lower cost operation to run and it on time effectively creates more capacity in a, in a fixed network as well. Yeah, Stephen, yeah, I was going to ask you, that's, that's something that you've talked about, that the railroads uh, uh, pivot to uh, PSR, precision scheduled railroading, may actually be beneficial in terms of providing better on-time performance, uh, maybe even more frequency if, if, the, if the network itself look uh, taken as a whole, freight and passenger is more, uh, is more predictable. We certainly hope so. And, and in some cases, I think we are seeing the results of that. I mean, there's a countervailing risk, which is that trains are getting longer and heavier. And so you, know, you have this question of sort of fluidity. And what I would say is, is the kind of operating model maybe less so in the uh, now than in the past, which is a sort of fault tolerant operating model where stuff goes wrong in the line of road and um, the 
it, it sort of works within the freight railroading context. That doesn't really work for us when we're 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 delivering people. But um, I, I I do think there's opportunities here, uh, as Bill described, and certainly we're trying to work closely with our hosts on that scheduling question and building um, more certainty into our operation as as the freight railroads become um, more time oriented and schedule oriented and have higher levels of delivery and reliability around that schedule then it absolutely should benefit us and yeah. um, and, and we're absolutely. working hard to do that to your question bill about working with amtrak and this is a chance for for me and uh, bill to recognize we have an incredible cadre of operating personnel who um bring decades of experience you know we have a uniform training standard we, we create an excellent group of very trained you know professionals and i mean a, a great example of this is amtrak's work on ptc right i mean no other railway had anywhere near the kind of complexity uh, uh, and challenge that amtrak had which is to deal with 20 plus host railroads and implement a positive train control system, well, actually three positive train control systems across the nation. We've completed all of our track miles on time, and we've managed to develop, you know, interoperability with this huge units of hosts. Um, and I think that just sort of speaks to the importance um, of that national railway operator that has the years of experience, the deep knowledge, the familiarity with our host counterparts of their respective rule books and operations and can have a stable, steady relationship. Um, so I, I think it is a good, it's a good model. It, it works. Um, the, our relationships can always get better. You always can learn more from each other. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I think there was something lost in the splitting kind of passenger and freight uh, in, in kind of the shared knowledge. And, and we need to work hard to, to help recreate that, particularly with a new generation of railroaders who, who never grew up in, in the era when freight and passenger were operating together. Um, so I, I think it's a challenge for us, but um, having a single passenger operator makes that challenge more manageable and allows us to learn, to spread our learning across the network as we learn from, in, you know, in one area of our operation to, to help uh, benefit across the whole whole system. Over the years, uh, I've wit witnessed uh, several success stories involving public-private partnerships uh, for uh, intercity passenger service. Not not necessarily long distance, but let's say let's say medium distance corridors. Uh, one of the finest, uh, just as an example, is is the Capital Corridor where the state of California and Union Pacific and, and Amtrak work together to improve the infrastructure. Uh, passenger train frequencies were increased. Union Pacific uh, benefited from that. There, there are other examples uh, going forward. You, th you think we need more of these uh, P3s, uh, as they're called? Is that the way to go? Or one of the ways to go, I should say. Well, well to some extent, all the state services are a form of a P3, right? We're accessing host railroad. Um, so there's your private sector. And, and of course we're doing it in combination with the departments of transportation or the similar uh, authorities in, in a state by state basis. So, so it's, it, it exists today. Um, 
not necessarily a single investment because you've got uh, the railroads investing in their own uh, track infrastructure, which we have access to and then pay to use. And uh, working jointly with the states to develop, you know, the level of service that they require. And that's a big part of the future. And we talked about it a little bit earlier, you know, in our, in our conversation here. Amtrak is bullish on investing in capacity and trip time improvements with our host railroads. Uh, we think that's a great, a great strategy. Uh, but what's a challenge is when those investments, whether they come through us or a state or through the federal government, if, if they don't deliver those benefits, it's a real problem. And that, that has, we have had that, 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 that come to pass in certain instances. And um, what we're looking for is a very clear and expedited process to figure out with our host railroads what levels of investment are actually required to support the reliable inner city service that we need right. and to avoid you know, significant degradation or impacts to the freight service. We, we want passenger and freight to grow. I think both can do more. Uh, I mean, as you know, I come from the freight side. I, my whole career has been really organized around this simple premise that railroads have more to do for the nation. And um, I, I uh, so, so we want successful uh, partnership, which involves investment when it's appropriate. But, um, but that's the key is, is when is that investment appropriate? How do we get a fair kind of arbiter of that question? And how do these conversations get handled efficiently so that we can know when we can expand and what it's going to take to do so. Um, because otherwise, we're, we're sort of locked into our current network. And mean, meanwhile, America is changing, population is growing, and as that sort of mismatch between where population and transportation needs are and our, on our current network grows, we become less and less relevant. And so we need to be able to modify our operation, modify our network. And we need to do that in partnership with our freight railroads. We need a reliable, consistent process to figure out access and to figure out the investments that are necessary and then to ensure that we get the quality of service that the public has invested in. Now, I wanted to just take a uh, sort of a high level view of, uh, uh, of, of the financials and, and accounting uh, not necessary to dive deeply, deeply into that and into the minutia, but you know, over the years, there have been critics that have uh, pointed out that Amtrak doesn't use uh, generally accepted accounting principles for uh, financial reporting. Uh, this practice could produce numbers that are misleading. Uh, it could uh, give the appearance, for example, that the uh, Northeast Corridor trains are, are profitable. I see that all the time, and it really kind of steams me when I see that reporting in the general media. No, they're they're not profitable. They're 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 profitable above the rail. But um, uh, here's an opportunity to to set the record straight. So, as you know, we operate an interconnected network of intercity trains and routes, and across the network, different trains and the segments. They share facilities, equipment, and services that, that our employees provide, right? And, and the revenues and costs that are associated with all the things we do are allocated. And they're allocated to trains and routes and service lines because you have to have an ability and we have to have a set of measures so we can track financial performance. Some costs, 
such as wages that are paid to engineers and conductors are easily attributable to the specific people in service and we know what those costs are. Um, other costs that, that benefit uh, multi-house, for example, say the cost of maintaining uh, the shared track infrastructure at Washington U Station, or the overhead costs of, the, uh, of our information technology services, we allocate based on relative use. Now, we do have outside audits. Ernst & Young audits Amtrak. Those, we make those audits publicly available. They're up on, uh, they're up on the Amtrak site. Uh, we have clean outside audits. Um, as I said, they're available and, and uh, they're conducted according to GAAP, right? So they're reporting to GAAP principles. You can see those. So I think the push and shove that we sometimes see is not about accounting principles because it's all there, right? You can pull up our audit. You can, you can see the GAAP accounting um, that we do. And then and over and above, uh, the Amtrak OIG doesn't issue an audit report but issues a, a statement as to whether even, you know, so even Ernst & Young has oversight and are they performing their audit, you know, in accordance with the several standards that they have to meet for federal, uh, a government-owned corporation. So I think the, the discussion really is about how costs are allocated and not necessarily the accounting itself or the quality of the accounting itself. So it really comes down to an allocation uh, uh, principle and, and and but we are using the form we have consistently used the formula under cost allocation uh, the formulation as provided by uh, 209 and and, and uh, 212 um, and, and we report regularly to Congress on that so my my, my uh, feeling bill and, and I'm learning and Stephen Stephen's been here a little longer it really is more about allocation than it is about actually accounting and the accuracy of numbers. And as ridership declines, um, you know, there's a fixed cost nature to the business. And so, uh, you know, there are, there, there's probably gonna be more discussion about allocation, you know, in a time of financial stress. Uh, just because of the fixed cost nature of the bit, fixed costs don't come out as fast as passengers or passenger revenue does, right? And, and yeah. Bill, I would just add, look, I, you're, you're absolutely right that the, in the Northeast Corridor, there, there's really two businesses, right? We have our, well, sort of to, for ease of use, we have our airport business, which is our big infrastructure, which is our tracks, our you know, electric traction system, our signal system, our stations, our yards. And, and that supports you know, 12 railroads. 260 million trips a year, 2,200 trends a day, so you know, pre-COVID. Right, it's a it's a big common infrastructure, and it comes with lots and lots of need, as you know. You know, tens of billion dollars worth of backlog, uh, between operating and capital costs, you know, uh, you know well over a billion dollars a year in expense. Um, and then you have our airline, and our our airline business, so to speak, you know, our regional and Acela service our long distance service that's using the corridor. It's the Amtrak operations that are, we're selling to our passengers. And, um, you know, the, the FAST Act and the, the work from Congress has been to help show these different businesses and how they each perform. The, the Amtrak airport business is primarily a reimbursable business, one that we try and collect from the different users of the corridor, their proportionate share of the costs of operations and a reinvestment into the capital. And Amtrak's 
kind of airline, so to speak, contributes on the same basis that everybody else does. Um, of course, on the host railroads, the, the, the cost of the infrastructure is only incremental cost. The host railroads are providing the base capitalization, and we're paying as incremental users. So it's a different access and cost model. In fact, one that's sort of less intensive for Amtrak, because in, when Amtrak's owning the Northeast Quarter, it's got a fund. It is that key capital investor in the whole plan. Right. And then contributing to it. So I think this is a complicated formulation. Obviously, it's not easy, but we, 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 we are as transparent as you can, I think, about it. And we're, we're under no illusions uh, around the different costs of the network. Um, but I think it's also really important to understand that our Amtrak services uh, in the Northeast Corridor create a lot of positive operating um, surplus of that above the rail operation which goes in to help contributing to that capital but by no means is it enough the federal government tops it off with uh, additional funds and then all those commuters and railroads who use the railroad help too um, but the bulk of our actual federal funding goes for the national network to cover the operating costs and the capital costs there uh, so I, I think it is a complicated network we do report in gap we try to show, as most companies do, different, um, more kind of helpful views of what the parts of our service are contributing or costing uh, as we do our reporting. But it's all there, and um, it's not a clean and easy picture, which is why I understand people are confused. Yeah. But uh, we're, not, we're not obfuscating anything. Bill, you're, you're, you're relatively new at the job. You have a varied transportation background. You, you, you did work for CSX at one point. Uh, you, you have an airline background. So is it fair to characterize you as, a, as an airline man and not a railroader? How do you define yourself? I define myself as a transportation guy. I've, I've been involved in, in transportation for 43 years now. I started out first in uh, ocean shipping, container shipping for over just over 23 years. And that was Sealand at, at the, as they were owned by CSX. And uh, when Sealand uh, was sold off, I had the opportunity to join in and work for uh, CSX for a few years. And I did. And, and the last uh, almost 14 years spent at, uh, at, um, at Atlas Air. And now I'm delighted and, and honored to have the opportunity to, to be here at, at Amtrak. Um, the experience there, my experience really is about asset-based transportation, network-driven operations, and the focus is to provide high-quality on-time service, um, be good stewards of the investment we have, whether it's private capital or government capital, um, and, and continue to grow uh, and be good stewards. I do have a rail background beyond the three years at CSX. My dad was a locomotive engineer all of his life, started with the new engine, retired from Conrail, Brother of mine worked all of his life as a conductor, uh, retired from Amtrak a couple of years ago. And uh, when I was in college, I worked on maintenance of way, uh, putting down welded rail and working on bridge timbers and all of that. So I've got, a, I've got a varied rail experience as well. Well, I think you can call yourself a railroader. Absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah. Stephen, just a, a final question for you. Uh, you've been called a, quote, a brilliant political strategist. How do you feel about that? Uh, that's overly generous, whoever said it. Um, Many people have I said, said that. I, I, my, um, 
I've been I've been very fortunate to be able to, you know, take a a, law, a long interest in transportation and railroads and spend uh, time working yeah. in a bunch of different ways to support it. And as I said, my goal is to help the company, uh, you know, achieve more rail service and better rails for the nation. And uh, I've been privileged to be able to serve yeah. and hope to do so. Bill Flynn and Stephen Gardner, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And uh, uh, we wish you good health. And, uh, have a safe day. Be safe out there. Thank you so much. You'll be safe as well. Look forward to speaking again. Thank you.